Well, it's a blessing to be here this morning. I am glad that you're here. Uh, I never imagined that my first two sermons as a pastor would be preaching to an empty sanctuary. It wasn't completely empty. We had, we had Lee and a few others were here, but I'm, I'm glad to see you. It's great for you to be here. I've grown a greater appreciation over the past weeks and months, really, of just the blessing it is to gather weekly together. And also, over the last weeks and months, I've noticed that there's a lot of voices in the world right now telling us what they believe truth is, and it reminded me of actually... Back when I worked at camp, I, I would lead team building for different groups, and we played this silly, fun game uh, called Tank. And so essentially what this game was is uh, it was kind of like dodgeball. So there'd be a boundary that you set up, and the kids would get with a partner, and one partner would get to be the tank, and the other partner would get to be the driver. And the tank would be inside the battlefield, and there'd be some beanbags and stuff laying around in the battlefield. And the driver had to stay outside of the battlefield. And the tank was blindfolded. So they were you know, yelling at the tank to go pick up uh, a piece of, uh, like a, a, a beanbag or whatever, to then throw it into another tank. And it was like dodgeball. And it went down to there was one person, that one team that won at the end. And so we would talk about the, the game afterwards and something that would continually be... Uh, something that people brought up, just in terms of how they work together, was that it's like, man, I couldn't hear anybody because all of these different voices were shouting different directions, and I didn't even necessarily know my partner that well, so I wasn't even sure how to pick out his voice because I I didn't, didn't know him well, so it's hard to know what to do. And I think that's a perfect analogy for what's going around in the world today, there's, there's lots of different voices, different opinions out there that are telling you that they have the truth, that they are the source of truth. But we know that there's only one source of real truth, and that is the Lord. And he has revealed himself to us in his written word, the Bible, uh, we're, we're desperate for the truth. We're going to continue in the book of Jude today. Uh, we're going to look at five specific characteristics of those who have crept into the church unnoticed. And we're going to see how the gospel frees us from those sinful characteristics. So please turn with me to Jude. It's been a while since... Uh, I preached on this. It's a short letter. I'm going to read through the letter here. So, Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although... I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we open up your word this morning, we ask that you would convict our hearts, that you'd give us eyes to see the sin in our life, that you'd give us the gift of repentance, that we would, by your grace, repent of our sin and turn towards you. Uh, Lord, so uh, just we ask that you would be with us as we look at your word this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Jude writes to encourage the church to contend for their faith. And the reason he tells them to contend is because there are people who have 
crept into the church unnoticed, who are actively denying Jesus Christ by using the grace of God as a license to sin. Not only are they using God's grace as a license to sin, but they also have the potential to lead others astray, to follow them in their sinful lifestyles. So the call is to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He goes on describing these people throughout the majority of the letter, and we would be wise to carefully listen to the sins these people have fallen into because we are prone to wander as well. The word that stands out to me the most from verse 4 is the word unnoticed. Crept in unnoticed. This should be sobering for us. This is the danger and deceitfulness of, of sin. It can creep into our lives unnoticed and cause a great amount of chaos, pain, hurt, division in our lives and within the church. We are sinful people and can be tempted into these same sins. We're not above this. Jude is telling the people in the church to contend for the faith in order that they would not follow in the footsteps of those who have crept into the church and become like them. This is a prayer for myself, a prayer for you. I pray that we would never be people who, in pride, feel like we're above anybody or incapable of certain sin. And I don't want to become a person who has crept into the church unnoticed. And I don't want you to be this person either. I, I pray that we would be people who view ourselves with humble and sober judgment, that we would notice the sin in our life and continually see how desperately in need of Jesus we are, that we would live a life of repentance and thankfulness for Christ. We're going to be looking at verse 16. As Jude is wrapping up his description of those who have crept in the church, he says in verse 16 that they are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So these are the five characteristics we'll be focusing on today. We're going to look at the first two together, grumbling and malcontent. Grumblers are people who complain about something in an ill-tempered way. Grumbling and complaining are not the fruit of a life walking with the Lord. Whenever man is out of touch with God, a little pattern that we can find in Scripture is that they're characterized with grumbling and complaining. To grumble and moan can be a distinguishing characteristic of man not walking with the Lord. Someone who is malcontent is a person who is dissatisfied and rebellious. But it isn't just someone who isn't satisfied. It's someone who cannot be satisfied. Calvin said, Those who yield themselves to their evil lusts are also murmuring and discontented, so that, no one, can ne- so that one can never do things right for them. Nothing is ever good enough. Nothing is up to whatever their standard is. The picture here is even more than someone who isn't satisfied, but that they are even blaming and finding fault somewhere else, 
specifically finding fault in God himself. This goes along with the grumbling and complaining. Unable to be satisfied, they grumble and complain. This is reminiscent of the Israelites in the wilderness. The Israelites grumbled and complained a lot after God saved them from slavery in Egypt. Numbers 11, starting at verse 1, says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses. And Moses prayed to the Lord. And the fire burned down, so the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Doesn't this sound silly? God had just saved them out of slavery, and they were where they were beaten, abused, and taken advantage of. They say that the food cost nothing, but the truth is that the food cost them everything, their, their life. They were slaves. And God saved them from that life of oppression. They were led away by God in a miraculous way that they were able to visibly see They saw the miraculous plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, and then God, in an amazing fashion, provides food for them to eat as he led them to the promised land, this this manna, this bread from heaven, just appearing for them to eat, that they they don't have to pay for that. It's free. And yet, they grumbled and complained. They decided to remember the food in Egypt over remembering their former life of slavery and how God had saved them. This is the nature of a grumbler and a complainer and a malcontent, forgetting what God has done for them, remembering the wrong things about life and even attributing value and worth to the old way of living. And now, They emphasize the hardships in life they are facing instead of the saving grace and provision of God. And we can be like this too, can't we? Those of us who have been saved and washed by the blood of Christ, who have been redeemed by the death and resurrection of Christ, can have our eyes taken off of Christ and get caught up with the things of the world. We can grumble, we can complain, and be malcontent. Complaining about cucumbers and melons instead of worshiping God for the salvation that, has, that he has offered and the provision of the bread of life he has given us. Cucumbers aren't even that good. And they get turned into pickles. And I don't like pickles. Uh, my girls continually make fun of me for not liking pickles. Um, this is silliness, isn't it? We get so caught up with the things of the world that we miss the glory that is Jesus Christ. The Lord takes us seriously. 
In Numbers 14, starting in verse 26, we see how the Lord deals with the Israelites as they continue to grumble and complain. It says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumbled against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, What you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number, listed in the census from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land when I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. This is God's response to those who grumbled and complained against him. And I want for us to see this little detail. Grumbling and complaining is aimed at someone. Grumbling and complaining has direction, and it is against the Lord. Grumbling, complaining, being malcontent, content erupts from a heart that is not filled with thankfulness. Thankfulness has direction as well, doesn't it? Uh, When we say, thank you, there is the you that we're thanking. There is a specific direction in thankfulness. A heart full of thankfulness for God will overflow with thanksgiving and praise towards God. Here's our exhortation here. Keep a watch on your life so that you do not fall into grumbling, complaining, and being malcontent. We would do well here to remember what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, 10 to 13. I, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And we know that this isn't about winning some athletic competition. It's about facing the different trials of life and being content. And this is the power of the gospel working in us. The gospel frees us to be thankful and content no matter the situation in life we find ourselves in because Christ has died for our sins. I would encourage you to make a habit of looking for things in life to be thankful for in all of what God is doing in your life. One specifically would be to continually remember the salvation that Christ has provided to you. Jesus Christ has died for you. He endured the wrath of God for you. And he rose again from the grave that we have hope of resurrection and new life. If you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus, you will be saved. Remember this good news. Take comfort in this good news. And the gospel will well up in us and produce thankfulness and praise instead of grumbling, complaining, and malcontentedness. Cucumbers don't become such a big deal to us in the light of salvation. If we see grumbling and complaining welling up in our life, that can be a symptom of a heart that is beginning to forget what Christ has done for us. It can be a symptom of the problem of taking our eyes off of Christ. 
a symptom of an unthankful heart. I pray that we would never forget the gospel. Instead of grumbling and complaining and being malcontent, by God's grace, be thankful for the salvation that we have in Christ and find contentment in Christ with whatever circumstances we face. The next characteristic is that these people follow their own sinful desires. Their sinful desires are in the driver's seat of their life. It is their sinful desires that dictate their decision-making, the direction that they go. Now, I want to be clear here. The word sinful in describing desires is an important word here. Desire in and of itself is not evil. In fact, desire can be a godly thing. Uh, We see that God desires certain things. John 17, 24 says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 1 Timothy 2, 3-4 says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we see here that God has desires. It would be a good study sometime to go throughout all of Scripture and see all the things that the Bible tells us that God desires. Um, also, n- not all the desires that we have are, are sinful. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The person who delights in the Lord is someone who desires God. And God will provide himself to those who desire him. Uh, however, when the world says to follow your heart, they are not saying to find your delight in the Lord. No. They're saying to find delight in anything and everything but God and to pursue after that. They say to follow the whim of your heart. They say to do what is right in your own eyes. This worldview is rampant in our world today and is even considered a virtue. The world teaches against self-control, which is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. The world teaches that self-control is doing violence to yourself. The world continually tells us to follow your heart, to go after whatever desires you have in your heart because they believe that what is in your heart is good and right. They believe that pursuing after the sinful desires in your heart will provide you with joy and with fulfillment in life. And this is the lie of sin, that it will provide us with what is good and give us life. But sin can never live up to the promises it makes. It provides us with what is evil and gives us death. And again, we must be careful here because we can do the same thing of following our sinful desires. In fact, every time we sin, we're following the desires of the flesh. What desires rule your life? We are sinful people who can even take desires that are not inherently sinful and make them sinful by giving them more power over over us than they should have. For instance, My desire to provide for and protect my family is a good and godly desire. This is part of my role as a husband and a father, to provide for and protect my wife and kids. However, if I let this desire 
outgrow my desire to serve and honor the Lord, then it can become a dominating desire in my life. A desire that, ironically, manifests itself in ways that actually don't provide and protect my family. This is the irony and deceitfulness of, of sin. An example of this is work. I need to have a job to provide for and protect my family. But if my job ends up consuming all my time so that I neglect my family, and I'm so preoccupied with my work and my bank account, then that becomes the dominating factor of my life. That, that can hurt my family. And not only this, but I can shrug off this behavior and attempt to spiritualize my sin of neglecting my family by saying that I'm working in order to provide for them, which is true, but has become part of the problem. This is why desires can be so tricky. We can desire good and godly things and still end up using those things for evil. So what about you? What are the desires of your heart? And what are you following? When Jesus was picking out his disciples, he said to them, follow me. Follow me. A disciple of Jesus will look to Christ and, and follow him. To follow Jesus is to desire him, pursue after him, know him and love him and obey him instead of following our own sinful desires, we'll follow Christ. The gospel transforms our heart and gives us new godly desires. For freedom, we have been set free. The Lord gives us a new heart. The way we combat sinful desire is to find our satisfaction in Christ. When we are satisfied in Christ, then other things lose their appeal. The next character trait is that these people are loud-mouthed boasters. Scripture speaks quite a bit about what our boasting should and shouldn't look like. Here are just a few instances of Scripture speaking to the issue of boasting. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For these things I delight, declares the Lord. So the boast here is a boast in the Lord and his character. Galatians 6.14 says this, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So here the boast is in Christ and what he has done for us in going to the cross on, on our behalf. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Again, we see our boasting is in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Instead of boasting about our perceived greatness, we boast about our weaknesses. Um, 2 Corinthians eleven thirty says, If I boast, I, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. 
In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not our own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are not great. God is great. Boasting draws attention to ourselves and is rooted in pride and the approval of man. Boasting can be done in order to impress others and gain a power and authority. Boasting about ourselves takes away the glory that is due to God and attempts to apply that glory to ourselves. For instance, if someone is musically talented or a great athlete or has a great intellect, who is it that gave them those gifts? Who is it that gave them the capacity to succeed at those things that they're good at? Isn't it not the Lord? The Lord's the one who has provided them with those abilities. It's God who deserves the glory. A humble approach would be to give thanks to God for whatever successes we have in life because it is God who has allowed to work it out and it is God who has given us those certain gifts and abilities. Our gifts and abilities are an opportunity to praise God for his goodness and direct attention to him rather than to praise ourselves and direct the attention of others to ourselves. This is a call for a heart of humility. Humility is a heart and life that knows its place before God. The gospel does not allow us to boast about anything. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. But praise be to God that he saved us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The last characteristic found in verse 16 is that these people who have come into the church show favoritism to gain advantage. This is to use people in order to get something out of them, to manipulate people. Favoritism and partiality are not characteristics that describe God and should not be characteristics of the church. This partiality could be driven by greed or even sensuality. For instance, showing favoritism towards someone who has a lot of money in order to try and use them for their money was an issue in the church. James chapter 2 speaks of this. The showing of partiality towards those who are wealthy or those who have little. Remember, these people have fallen into Balaam's error and are driven by greed. They're also driven by their sensual passions. Second Peter has a lot of similarities to Jude, and Peter says of these people in chapter 2, verses 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgressions. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. 
They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Eyes full of adultery. They entice unsteady souls. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Honestly, when I, when I think of these people, I generally think of a very obvious, dark evil. But I was reminded this week that the devil masquerades as an angel of light. Evil that looks evil isn't as deceiving. This week I saw a video of uh, church clergy dressed in their robes and uh, having uh, rainbows around their necks and smiling faces dancing to an upbeat song of how we all want to be loved. This should break our hearts. Uh, This is a great example of the verse I just read. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. There is much that could be said about this. This is the opposite of what Christ does for us. This is the opposite of biblical and Christ-like love. Jesus did not rejoice in sin with a smile on his face. He went to the cross in order to suffer and die because the wages of sin is death. Let's think about what Christ did for us. He came to earth and was born as an infant, the creator of the universe, in humility, becoming an infant. He then lived a perfect life without sin and underwent torture and crucifixion. And all of this out of love for us, in order that we may no longer be slaves to sin, but instead be alive and have eternal life, eternal relationship with God that has been made right. Jesus does not show favoritism to gain advantage. Instead, Christ humbly served others at his own expense and for the advantage of others. When we look around us, the different relationships that we have, our goal should not be to see what we can get out of that relationship. That is selfish and greedy. Instead, we are to be like Christ and see how we can invest into the relationship in order that the love of Jesus may be made known. The gospel frees us to do this because we know this love and have experienced this love from God and can now share it with others. They are grumblers, malcontents, follow their own sinful desires, loud-mouthed boasters, and show favoritism in order to gain advantage. And as I studied through this, I saw that these people lack thankfulness, like I mentioned before. Thankfulness keeps us from grumbling and complaining because a thankful heart is a heart that is meditating on Christ and his character, his work for us, instead of something else. Thankfulness can keep us content. Thankfulness is evidence of a heart that knows that it was needy and that its needs were met. So there's nothing to boast about. 
Thankfulness encourages us to serve others rather than to take advantage of others. Thankfulness helps us to remember what Christ has done for us. Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Thanklessness leads to futile thinking and, and darkened hearts. Studying and preparing for this message was uh, a great blessing for me this week. Um, two years ago on Wednesday was the accident uh, of my friend. If uh, you remember, I, I shared in my testimony back in October. Um, and when trouble comes and when we face suffering and tragedy in our life, it's such a blessing to remember what Christ has done for us because the temptation can be to grumble against the Lord. I, I know that's been a temptation in my own life. And studying through this, again, is a great reminder to remember the gospel, to remember what Christ has done for us on our behalf, that we were wretched sinners deserving of eternal hell. And Jesus Christ, in his love for us, came and lived among us, died for us, and rose again from the grave, that we may have life, that we may have a relationship with him forever. And so when tragedy and suffering comes, because it will, it's a good thing to grieve. Uh, Jesus when his friend Lazarus passed away, he, he wept, even though he knew five minutes later he was going to raise him from the dead. He still grieved. It's a good thing to, to grieve. But in the midst of that, to remember the Lord and what he's done for us, to come to the Lord in thankfulness because Christ has died for our sins. And that is such a blessing. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in, in thankfulness. It's amazing to know that the God of the universe who spoke life and creation into existence, who we have rebelled against, sinned against, we became your enemy. And yet, in the midst of that, you decided to, to love your enemy, to send your son Jesus, to die on the cross for our sin, to rescue us from our sin, and to bring us to yourself, that we might be in a right relationship with you, that instead of eternal hell that we deserve, that we would experience eternal life and salvation with Christ. We come to you with thankfulness. I ask that we would be a people who are marked by joy, that are marked by thankfulness, that we would never forget you no matter what circumstance in life that we face, that we would remember the work 
of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And thank you for it. And pray this in Jesus' name.